Hello. How are you? Good. It's recording. It's recording. Oh, my camera's on. We don't need that. Yes. Well, I turned my. Wait, wait I turned mine on, but it's not on. That's oh, you turned. Now you're. Oh. Now it's off. Now we're both off. No, no, it's on. It's on. It's just. Oh. Uh, it's just uh, over here. Wait, watch this. Whoa. Oh. There you go. Whoa! Look at you. It's a different <laughs> angle. Whoa. <clears throat> nice. Oh, that nice. Was fun. That was that was fun. Guess uh, guess what's going on outside my uh, my window right now? Um, is there a guy taking a dump in a porta potty? No, they moved it. It's gone. <laughs> it's, I should have phrased that as "What is not going on outside my window?" So so the the ongoing saga of the porta potty is it moved over the last two weeks. It has moved thrice um, to just different spots and. There are, I believe, so I, um, you know, friend of the show, friend of ours, you know, her from the internet, Sarah Kirby, my, uh, my colleague here, we, we share a um, side of the building. So we both look out on, on porta potties or well, a porta potty collectively. And uh, she, she dropped by my office yesterday and um, there are, there are drains that are coming down a hill. Um, I thought they might be French drains, because I don't actually know what that means. Oh, did I lose you? You're not here. Uh-oh. Hello. Hello. So is this the show? <laughs> What's in the show is in the show, unless it's not. So apparently it's not a good idea um, to open your laptop from clamshell mode and then close it again <laughs> while you're on a Zoom call because something got very confused and um, yeah and then but then but then I opened it I want a relaunched Zoom and it was working and you were still talking you were mid story you hadn't noticed that I was gone true um, and, and then I I went and then eventually you noticed or I went I went away so anyway well and now you're back and then I'm back. then I said I think you're gone. I, I don't think you're here. So um, anyway, you were you were mid I, mid story. Yeah. So so the the porta potty has moved thrice, and my friend Sarah Kirby <laughs> um, found it, uh, and uh, it is now around the corner underneath the overpass. Um, she went on a she went on a hunt for it, and wait, who um, went on a hunt for it? My friend of the show and friend of ours, Sarah Kirby. Um, you know her because, from the internet. Because it's her job to watch the porta potty. Well, she and I both uh, share a side of the building, so we have been uh, tracking porta potty movement together. She, I didn't, I didn't share that with you, but she and I both we have a lot of interest in in this porta potty. So much so that I'm not sure if it was purchased, but we did have a a plan to put a uh, Christmas wreath on the porta potty um, because we wanted to see we wanted it to be festive. Yeah. So, so yeah, Who wouldn't want to be festive. Right. Right. So the other thing that's happened with the porta potty is that, and um, this was the joke that I was making before when you, when you, when you messed with your clamshell, um, th there are drains that are coming from the, the hill that the porta potty was on. And I want, I did call them French drains. That's not what they're called. I, you know, no. I just thought it was a fancy, fancy drain, um, but they're just a drain. And I thought maybe the porta potty was draining into that and the poop and, and pee was coming directly towards my car, which is where the drain ends, like right oh. where I park. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But no, it's, it's just a drain for water. So yeah, but the yeah, I'm pretty sure that the whole principle of a porta potty is it doesn't drain anywhere. It just stays in the in the 
potty. I well, think that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, that that's the logic behind it. But maybe um, we, we might have had a situation here where it would be a little easier for the porta potty company if they wouldn't have to empty them as much if they just drained it out into the parking lot by my car. Well, but then, you know, what, what they would have to spend their time doing then would be probably lawsuits. True, true. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm pretty sure, I, maybe not in North Carolina. I'm pretty sure in New Jersey, our porta potty regs are pretty locked down. <laughs> Are your porta potties all all controlled by uh, uh, organized crime? That's what I learned from the um, from the Sopranos, Sopranos, whatever whatever it might be called. So I I don't know maybe maybe that's waste management, porta potties, um, other other things like that. You you wouldn't want you wouldn't want that porta potty to to have, get you know have its door kicked in, would you? You want a little protection on that on that porta potty. Well, so here's the thing, Ben. I could tell you. I could tell you how it actually works, but then I'd get whacked. You get whacked. Yeah. You be, yes. It'd be, it'd be over. Uh, so oh, I wouldn't really, well, I really wouldn't get whacked. I'd just be sitting in a diner apparently, and then it would fade to black. Now I, I want to <laughs> say that I have not seen a single episode or maybe I've seen one episode of that show, but I know about the ending uh, and all the controversy. And, and, you know, here's the thing, man. I'm saving it for prison. I, <laughs> I'll watch The Sopranos when I'm in prison. I like quite when, like when that. John show. Roderick is reading Shakespeare or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, I, I quite, I quite enjoyed it. Um, mm. Yeah, and uh, and and watched it in in real time, and really. Oh, uh, oh really? Yeah. Oh, when, yeah. it, when when it was actually on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. hmm. Um, it was it was something. Danny and I both. She she really liked it. I think we came in maybe after the first season or second season when, when DVDs started before streaming and we used to go to the local DVD store and rent a season of the Sopranos. And then we caught up after a couple seasons and then, uh, well, I don't know, what was it? Five or six seasons. We watched the others in real time and subscribed to the Canadian version of HBO, which is not HBO. It is just like. It's, it's Doc called HBO. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, Don. It, it, so do you, do you know what, what the liquor store is called in, in Ontario? Um, oh, I know this. It's a package store? No, it's called the liquor store. You know what the oh, beer okay. store is called in Ontario? Uh, the beer store? Yep. Do, do you know what <laughs> do you know what the network that you watch movies on is called in Ontario? HBO? No, the movie network. Oh, okay. We're very creative. Um, oh, actually, so it's not. Let me let me tell you. It used to be called the Movie Network. I'm going to share a link with you to put into the show notes. Now it, it is called the New Crave, the All New Crave, the All New Crave. Yep, Crave is the new it's home. What, for, it's, it's what people crave. Yeah, what plants crave. It's what they it's what they crave. You get HBO. You get Showtime. You get movies. There's yeah, so they they changed it was called the movie network, then they called it TMN, then they called it Crave. Anyway, when I was there, I watched the oh, Sopranos the on the movie network mm -hmm. after after I went to the beer store. <laughs> uh, I just it, it it never really I don't know, it never really bothered me when I lived there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I but I think telling Americans about it, I think they find it very funny. Um, that it it literally says like it's the beer store.ca and, yeah. and you you can see 
in their in their pictures and their fancy Squarespace made uh, website. <laughs> There's if if you go through the pictures on the on the banner, one is just beer store, and that's what it is. You know, you found it yeah. when you see beer store on the side of it. What do you have here at at this store? Well, well, sir, we have beer. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and the beerstore.ca would like to use my current location. I, I think I'm going to not allow that. <laughs> well, except all cookies, except all the beer cookies. Yeah. It, it uh, says uh, uh, Leamington, uh, oh. 782 kilometers. Is this your preferred store? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> so, Don, there's a food safety tie-in here. Okay. Yes. So, Leamington, Leamington, Ontario... Um, should maybe, a town in North Ontario. It is not. It is, it is very, very <laughs> South Ontario, like extreme. In fact, near the most southern point of Ontario, which would um, explain why it's the nearest store to me. Yes, yes. So it is um, the the most southern point um, in Ontario is Peely Island, or in Canada, it's Peely mm-hmm. Island. Um, and I'm gonna I'll, I'll send you a Google map because this this. This is, you could not have provided a better segue into, for us getting into food safety today, Don, than this. Okay. And you you didn't even know. I didn't um, even know. So, okay. So uh, take a look at the Google map link that I just sent you. Um, if, if you if you dare. Sure, sure. Hold okay. On. Oh, Leamington, Ontario. Look at Leamington, that. Ontario. Okay. And then you see Peely Island. Yeah, I do. Which is very close to Putin Bay, it is. Um, Ohio. Yeah. Um, which is right right across Lake Erie. Oh, from wait a minute Seattle. now. Did we go? I went to a meeting in Putin Bay. I think May, you probably did with, with, with Jeff, did Jeff, Jeff Lejeune. Lejeune. Yes. Yeah. So um, I've never been to Put- so close to Canada. I could have swum. You could have. You could. Yes. Um, so so Don, I spent three summers during my undergraduate and masters in Leamington, Ontario. We're gonna play twenty questions, Don. Um, Why? <laughs> Why? Because because we did this last last episode with a special guest. Could, could you tell me why um, I spent three summers in Leamington, Ontario? And you you can ask it yes or no questions, and I'll oh. see if I yeah. Okay, so all right. So first of all, apologies in advance because my AirPods Pro are oh. decidedly not pro oh. um, because they keep trying to usurp the control from zoom from my microphone. So of course, I don't know why that's happening and I need to work on fixing that. Um, but, um, but I'm, I'm happy to play this game. Tell me again, what it is I'm trying to guess. Okay. You're trying to guess why I spent three summers in Leamington, Ontario. Okay. And this is, uh, and this is uh, yes or no questions. Yeah. 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 Let's, okay. let's do yes or no okay. questions. Um, Um, <laughs> I wasn't prepared for this. No, I know. Um, wh- uh, were you high school age or younger? I was older. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't even either. know how to play 20 questions. You don't, you don't. Um, all right. So you're older than high school age. Yes. Um, were you, um, were you college age or older? Yes. Was it for a job? Yes. Was the job related to the food industry? Yes. Whoa. Um, 
What do they do in Leamington? Um, oh, does, is the job related to beer? No. Good, <laughs> but no. So can I, do you want a hint? Um, sure. Turn on, are you looking at the Google map that I sent you? I am. Turn on satellite. Okay. And zoom in. Let me see. Uh, satellite. How do I turn on satellite? I think it's down in the layers area on the yeah. left-hand side. Oh, satellite. Whoops. Terrain? More? If you just... Satellite. Yeah. Got it. And zoom okay, in. I turned on satellite. Zoom in to like... Um, I'm trying to think what the... Uh, there's no... They don't give you the scale here. Oh, is it is it related to tra transit to Paley Island? No, it is not related to transit to Peely Island. Is it related to the tip exhibit? <laughs> no, it is not. Scroll, scroll in. Oh, it, okay. Yeah. Is it related to Thies and Apple Orchard? Um, sort of. Okay. If you, um, if you, if you go to the left of Thies and Apple Orchard, if you go yeah. west, yeah, and and, and scroll into where. Okay. You, you can see like streets and, and some buildings. There's a lot of buildings that are in yes. Leamington, Ontario. Yes. That are not houses. Oh. Well, oh. Well, are they houses though? Oh. Huh. I see there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of big, uh, it, it, it's not related to weed, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's not. But it's, oh, oh, more Grove Farms. Is this is this uh, indoor agriculture, or this is these are greenhouse? It's related to green, greenhouses. These are greenhouses. Related to greenhouses. It was, it was. So, so I um, here. I'll give you. You did good. I don't know seven <laughs> questions, and I answered them incorrectly. So, so Don, I spent my um, uh, summers for. Uh, uh, at least one year of undergraduate and two years of my master's and some falls um, doing food safety things for the Ontario greenhouse vegetable growers oh, in Leamington, Ontario. I, I think I knew this. You yeah. I think you did, but it's, it's old. This is, I mean, this goes back into early, early episodes of, mm -hmm. of food safety talk. So um, I, uh, yeah, so, so they, I, I was their food safety coordinator. I worked, um, initially under um, someone um, who started the food safety program. Her name was Amber Lutke. And Amber was, she, she also uh, completed her master's with, with Doug Powell at um, University of Guelph. And she uh, um, started, like, actually, this is where I met Betsy Bin, mm. um, how I got into any, really anything food safety and learned about, like, doing extension work. And sure. Yeah, this was like, I, I went out, um, th there's about 200 greenhouses in Ontario and about a hundred of them at the time, maybe 120 of them were actually in the town of Leamington. Hmm. And the history is that there were um, uh, Italian settlers from um, in the 1950s that, um, that emigrated from Italy and, and grew tomatoes for the Heinz plant that also mm -hmm. used to be in Leamington, Ontario. And then in the 80s and 90s, they transitioned their um, field tomatoes to greenhouse tomatoes because there's um, more more money to be had in the greenhouse. So um, yeah, so I did I did a bunch of food safety stuff for the for this group, and so it was like it like the, I definitely have been to the beer store in Leamington, <laughs> your preferred beer store. Um, 
I, I one summer I rented a cottage on um, Point Pelee. And yeah, and it, it was this was before the the days of like Airbnbs and and all those things. And it was it was super cool. I would spend most of my week on this cottage on the lake, and then go home on the weekends, which is not how you're supposed to do it. But that was when um, that my then then girlfriend and now wife was um, in uh, in college, or maybe she was a teacher or something. But I what whatever. Oh, I, I can't remember what we were doing. Um, but yeah, so so I learned I like literally learned how to do food safety in Leamington, Ontario. How about that? Yeah. And, and, and probably like, I get, let me tell you my, my favorite, like thing that I learned out of this. Um, there was a fire at a, so, so in greenhouse production, um, there's a lot of plastic mm -hmm. and, um, there, there's, Plastic, the the way at least back back in like this this would have been two thousand maybe two thousand and one. Um, there was a lot of plastic that was used uh, to contain like media substrate that, that um, the uh, tomato plants were were growing in. So so it's a hydroponic system. So you you place the um, the seedlings. I don't even know if that's the right term, um, but you know, small little tomato plants um, planted them on these plastic blocks that had a whole bunch of fiber in it. And then the, the water would be pumped through those plastic blocks and the roots would grow and intertwine with this fiber. But, but there was a lot of waste because you couldn't use, and I'm sure, like, I don't know if it's still the same way, but it, it would produce a lot of plastic and the plastic had to be disposed of. Um, but there was a fire at a plastic disposal waste place and the fallout from that fire fell into a number of greenhouses and so it was my first like crisis uh, from a food safety standpoint and trying to develop messages for people in the industry about like what were they doing to make sure that there wasn't like toxic plastic fallout on tomatoes that they were selling in grocery stores so i know like find a toxicologist to give their expertise, um, work with the local um, or no, the provincial um, Department of Agriculture and not the Department of Agriculture, Ministry of Ag and Ministry of Health to like kind of like figure out what the risk was and then be able to communicate that. So, so it was like my, like that, that's how I learned how to do stuff here. Like it was the greatest job ever. Cool. And yeah. So, so anyway, so you should go to Leamington, Ontario the next time you cross the border and visit the beer store and also go see some greenhouses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to tell you about, oh, um, so we, wait, where, where am I going here? Um, oops, wrong spot. What's, uh, what's going on with you? As I, as I try to find the thing that I was going to talk about. Okay. So I've been buying myself lots of toys recently. Um, yes. I got a, uh, I got an, I got a new phone. See, Apple was telling me that my, my battery need to be replaced on my, uh, iPhone 11. And so I'm like, screw it. I'm getting a new phone. 
And then my watch wouldn't do an EKG on me. And so I'm like, okay, I'm getting a new watch. And then uh, I decided I'm, I, I, you know, the, the iPhone 13 has a MagSafe. Uh, so I got a MagSafe battery. Uh, and then I got a, a new MagSafe charger because the phone and the battery and the watch can all, you know, charge on an Apple MagSafe charger. So I got, I got that. So yeah, I just been, I've been, you know, trying to do my personal best to bump the stock price. <laughs> what? <laughs> and yeah, doing, doing your, doing your job, getting, getting toys. I always kind of like the, the end of the year. Like, I know it's not like, these are all for your work and, but my work. But it is, it is really nice to have like, I don't know, it feels like, it feels like Christmas, right? When you get a new, get a new exciting. Well, um, yeah. Thing. And, and I feel like, you know, I'm not going to ask family, well, the, the phone belongs to the university, at least that's what they think. So, uh, but all the other stuff, all the accoutrement is, uh, is, is mine, but I'm not going to ask like family members to pay for that. It's like, I can no. pay for that myself. Right. It's yeah. Just, you know, yeah. But it, but it's kind of fun to get it at the like a, a, around the around the Christmas holiday time, right? Yeah. It's like it's like yeah. a present. It's a present for oh, you. Well, you know, another present that I got for myself um, is I'm you know I'm in my my home office, which needs some work, and but mostly it does it needs I need a place for my stuff, um, and so I ordered some IKEA shelves, and uh, I had some I got some IKEA shelves already but I had to go pick them up because they weren't doing deliveries, I guess, because of the pandemic. Um, but now they're doing deliveries. And so I, I dropped a bunch of money at Ikea and my, and my shelf, my new shelves and, and shelving accoutrement are, are coming. Uh, I'm like that word. I've been using it a lot. Accoutrement. Um, are coming, are coming uh, this next weekend, which is great because it'll take me some time to put it together and uh, I can do that. Uh, I can do that over the holidays. So Did that's, you that's the other thing I've been spending money on is, uh, is, uh, shelves from my office did you put some stuff up like you don't sound as echoey as as you have like no, are, do you, are there things on the on the tables not, the windows not, not really it's about the same amount of echoiness i think i'm just looking around yeah i think it's about the same um there's a chair in here now that we moved out of the living room when we were refinishing the when we were redoing the kitchen that's still here um that that's probably you know, doing some sound dampening, but no, it's not, it's still pretty, it's still pretty unprofessional as a professional podcasting uh, office. So, yeah. Well, I, I will. So update on, on furniture for me. I also am in an echoey, somewhat empty um, office that I've moved. I moved into this office in August and um, Don, I, I ordered furniture for this in July. <laughs> um, Don, I, I want you to know uh, that my furniture has shipped. It is not, no, not, not yet arrived in that furniture. So, so I've, um, I might've, well, I'm sure you, I know, you know, I might've mentioned this on the podcast in the past, but my, my wife is a, she, she's a, a designer. She does, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. she does like home, home stuff. Um, like, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna redo your, your kitchen. She designs that. And, yeah. um, so she, she has been involved, um, in, in helping me pick out some furniture and do some things for walls and things like that. But, um, one of the things that she is very keen on when it comes to wall, like pictures and artwork, she's like, you kind of need the, the furniture in there, you know, cause we don't know how big it is and what the space mm. is going to look like. Yeah. 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 And so, so I, I don't have a lot of sound baffling still mainly because I don't have new furniture and I need the furniture to get the things that are going to baffle. So oh, yeah. no, that makes, that makes sense actually. Like, why would you, why would you, yeah. Why? I mean, yes, you can hang stuff on the wall, but that might not be the right for that space. 
if, right. until you get the, you won't know until you get the furniture in. That's yeah. And th- yeah, when you're not an expert in this, that's what, what experts do. And it's, and it, it's like you said, it makes, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe it'll be too big and then I got to get another thing. So yeah. So I'm still, I'm still waiting uh, on, I think it was all lost in the Suez Canal or um, supply chain, block, blockchain supply chain issues. I don't know. Well, yeah. and this is all this is all stuff that for your university office that you had to order through the university, right? True. Yes. And, and, and yeah. I, my 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 personal guess is that it's way, way less efficient than it could be because universities. Yeah, because of the because the systems. Right. We got a we got a bunch of bunch of system things happening. Yeah. We, and we got to make we got to make sure that nobody is buying office furniture you know, illegally or for inappropriate, like we certainly wouldn't want people to buy um, office furniture, you know, for the wrong office or, you know, from a non-approved vendor, you know, I mean, it's, you have to, you know, it's just, it's, it's very important that you have the right furniture or misusing that that all the rules be followed. Yeah. You, it's possible that I could get a a chair from an, um, an unapproved vendor and then that chair I could die. Yeah. 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 It, could, it could, could be flammable. Could be flammable. You never know. Yeah. You never know. It's, it's just really important that there be lots of rules. And here, here's the thing. When there's lots of rules, then things get very complicated. And you know what you need then? You need administrators. Yes. Yes. And that's what makes the university good is more administrators. I was just reading, I was just reading wait, an article. Wait, hang on a second. I think I'm an administrator now. Yeah, wait, but this... it's fine. You're one of the good ones. Oh, good, no, good. I was, okay. just, I was just reading an article that was just making me angry, an article from uh, Academe, which I've now deleted, um, but basically just complaining about um, <laughs> football coaches and president's salaries. So, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. 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 Um, so I have a question for you. I, I just thought about um, supply chain and I got a, I got a message from um, from a journalist. Hmm. And, um, and so the, and I don't know if you've talked to anybody about this, but do you, um, so let me, let me like actually get the, the full, full message. So I'm, I'm not gonna, um, out this person because she, she's, uh, she recently left like a, a cool big newspaper, but now she's on her own with her own website. Hmm. And I don't want to, I don't want someone to scoop her. Oh, um, yeah. So, but I do want to talk to you about this and see if you have the similar thoughts on me. Okay. So um, she said, uh, recently I sat at a bar with her, with somebody um, and got talking to a commercial pilot seated next to me. She told me she hasn't been flying as much in the past several months because she has a sensitive gut which has been acting up more than usual. So right now, now it's like a food safety thing. But the commercial pilot's hypothesis is that supply chain glitches means she's eating more food past its prime. I have no clue if that's a real thing, but since she's smart enough to pilot a plane, I figured it was a theory worth vetting. So the question to you is, do the slowdowns in food shipments pose any danger to consumers? So so it's an interesting theory, but I think there's more to supply chain than this that I wanted. So I, you know, my, my, my quick answer is no, it's not, a, it's not really got anything to do with food past its prime or past expiration dates or food that is sitting longer in transit. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's a real food safety concern with that, but I'll talk like, 
I'm I'm open to hearing your your thoughts on that. If you think that refrigerated trucks may not um, be working as well, and, and maybe there's some some growth, but I think that there are potential supply chain issues that that could lead to food safety problems. But but anyway, what what are your thoughts on this? And this is not yeah, risky or not. It's just yeah. you know, this is a different this is a different question. Yeah, I don't I don't think that supply chain issues are causing this pilot's stomach trouble, right? Like if right. that's the question, yes. right? No. I would be much yeah. I would be much more interested in talking with the pilot and finding out like exactly what she's sensitive to, how how it manifests, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it. Well, let me rephrase. Um, I don't think that the supply chain issues are causing food safety problems that are disrupting the pilot's stomach. Right now, if if she if the pilot has a sensitive stomach and maybe she's been eating foods that she doesn't normally eat or switching to, you know, I mean, so is there's so many things that could that could cause that. But I don't. But I mean, again, our food supply is mostly safe. Right. And there's mostly most food doesn't contain pathogens. Um, so I don't I don't think extended supply chains. I mean, again, if, if the refrigeration is correct and the supply chain is extended, then you're really only worried about listeria. Um, and I just, I just, yeah, I just, I just doesn't, it doesn't add up for me. Um, but I mean, you know, obviously if you break the supply chain badly, yes, that can lead to food safety problems, but most of our food safety problems are not, well, I, I don't know. I mean, if you're talking about meat that is, is naturally contaminated with pathogens and right. you disrupt the supply chain there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really hard to say because the, 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 the quote, the food supply and the supply chain are not single entities. They are multifaceted, complicated entities. And it really, you'd have to get into some specifics. Um, and I just don't, I, I, yeah, my, my, my gut feeling, haha, is, um, that it's not, it's not causing that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. I think that there are some things that we like, let, let, let's go through some particular examples on this that I could see being, um, the potential to increase risk, right? So, so if we, if you have a supply chain issue, but you still have a demand for a certain ingredient or a certain food, or you know you're you're um, uh, you're a fast food company and you need uh, chicken <laughs> chicken fillets for your for your Chick Fil A's uh, sandwiches that that you sell, and you can't get chicken because of quote supply chain issues. But you're going to maybe think about going to different suppliers to that you would have not, you may not know a lot about, right? So I, I think there might be some indirect risk potential, but I don't think it's borne out that, that we would even know yet what those public health impacts are. So, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like maybe, you know, normally you've got supplier A or supplier A through Z and here are the standards that they have to make meat to, to supply you, but say suppliers A through L are unavailable because they can't get feed because of supply chain issues and they just don't have chicken to, to sell you. Now you've got to fill another 13 or 12, whatever number of letters that was. Um, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to backfill from other suppliers and you might not have the time or the resources to vet them in the same way that you already had with the suppliers that you were using. And I, and I think we've seen that in the past lead to, um, to issues. You know, there, there are a number of recalls or outbreaks where 
one of the, the, the causes, one of the factors was, oh, we changed suppliers, right? So I, I think that there is like, and as you said, I'm, I'm giving a really simplistic view on this. This is a really nebulous web of, uh, of product movement on how it gets to us. But I could see that, that like, th now, is that leading to this pilot's upset stomach? Almost certainly not, right? Like that, that's, that my, my example is not, not the source, but I think that that's a more interesting conversation about supply chain interruptions and supply chain changes. Yeah, and and let's let's take the chicken company for example. I had uh, I had an opportunity to go. What, where was I? It was somewhere. Oh, I guess it was going for my follow up on my um, endoscopies last year. So I went back to to just follow up with my, my with my endoscopy doctor, who really I've discovered really is a science nerd because he loves it when I ask him complicated questions. He's like, oh, nobody ever asked me that before. Let me explain. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and we had we had a nice we had a nice chat. Um, but I got Chick Fil A on the way home. Um, because there was a Chick Fil A that was on the way home, and the question is, so like let's say Chick Fil A switches suppliers is that going to cause a problem? Well, not necessarily, because I'm assuming that Chick-fil-A has cooking chicken figured out, right? Right, and right. So th yes. their, their process is going to over-engineer. Now you could imagine, okay, well, let's say that they bring in a specially contaminated batch of chickens and they don't do the sanitation the way that they should. And then there's post post process recontamination. Yes, I can imagine all of that. But again, I've also got to imagine that the Chick-fil-A's system is pretty robust and able to withstand, you know, uh, uh, throwing, a, a, you know, maybe more contaminated than normal uh, chicken supply at it. Again, we wouldn't know without a, um, you know, a more, um, you know, a risk assessment or, you know, something, something more quantitative. And, and we're just speculating because we don't have data on what's going on inside uh, Chick-fil-A. But, but uh, anyway, so it's, yeah, it, it's complicated, it turns out. Yeah, right, right, and, and maybe maybe my example of chicken wasn't the best one, um, but but I'm glad you like I'm glad we talked about it. What, it you know, is it, it it might be different if they had to change suppliers for tomatoes for their salads or um, you know something that that they strawberries things that they are not that they don't have an um, a, a real sort of risk reduction step in the kitchen for in their system, right. Right. That yeah, that um, that that certainly could could be a problem. The other thing that, and I'll um, uh, I'll send you a link on this. That and this this goes back to really the um, gosh, well over a year ago. We put this out in April of uh, 2020. But um, one thing that the that early on in the pandemic supply chain issues, you know, the, not to to rehash this too much, but we I think we all felt. Um, there wasn't, uh, you know, certain things were not at grocery stores, you know, famously toilet paper. Um, but then there were other things like, and, and actually poultry was one of them that I experienced. I all, all purchase, um, chicken breasts or chicken thighs or a whole chicken, uh, you know, once, maybe twice a week. And they were not available in my, in my local grocery stores, but, but the chicken, processors started coming to Raleigh and selling large um, boxes, 30 pound boxes of, of chicken breasts or chicken thighs that were, had been destined for food service, mm -hmm. but, but weren't able to change their packaging or system. So, so they, they, you know, there was nothing that was going to restaurants, but now they had to 
figure out a way to sell these these boxes. I never ended up buying one of these boxes, but we got a lot of questions about, is there anything different that a consumer needs to do if you're, but instead of buying like what I do, like literally two chicken breasts, now you're buying 20 or 25 or 30 chicken breasts. Mm -hmm. How do you, do you have to do anything differently in your home? What are the things you have to think about like breaking down that box? Are there cross-contamination? Um, it's not, it's not any more likely to cross-contaminate. It's just a, there's, it, there, there's just more juice. There's more right. stuff. And so I think that this was something that we experienced 18 months ago, but I don't think anybody's buying 30 pound boxes of like, this has been rectified really, or, or maybe return to the, to where it was. Like, yeah. 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 I, I think I, I would agree with that assessment. Yeah. But this is all I could think of, right? Like mm -hmm. I think, right. I think, think sometimes people are, um, you know, the, 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 there is a tendency to try to put the conversation of the day into context for food safety. And, and it doesn't always fit, right? Like it, it doesn't, it's not always a, there's not always a real, real connection. I do wonder though, if um, there are folks who listen to our podcast that, that work in the food industry, that, that are experiencing supply chain challenges in chemicals or um, PPE or other things that are making them have to change what they're doing in a processing plant because they can't get their hands on things that they were able to get um, before. And maybe that, maybe we just don't know about that. Right. Right. As well. Um, so something else I wanted to, um, ask you about, since we talked a little bit about COVID, mm -hmm. I sent you this, um, but this came to us from who, who first got it, uh, or I didn't send it to you directly, but, uh, someone on our text changed um, friend of the show, Linda Harris sent us this really nice, MMWR quick stats. Normally quick stats and MMWR don't apply to us. Like if mm -hmm. you look back, it's, it's like, and it's, you know, good things in public health, like, you know, number of reductions of, uh, or increase in the number of, um, you know, good things that are happening in, in HIV, right? Mm -hmm. Like, right. but, but this one really hit home. So mm -hmm. this is uh, quick stats percentage of employed adults. Yeah who needed to work closer than six feet from other persons all or most of the time at their main job by occupation, National Health Interview Survey, United States, July to December, 2020. That's a really long headline, but it explains exactly what the stat is. Yep. That, and these, these, these MMWR headlines are, you know, they are, they are often wordy, but they, it's so good that they just completely nail it. Right. I mean, it's, it's just like, like that's, that's just, if you, if you can, if you can process that, that long sentence, you know, exactly what it is you're about to get. Right. It does. It, it does exactly the job. So, so, so here we are, I'm going to give the, um, the, the percentages. Um, and I, one thing that is missing, and maybe it's because I don't, I didn't, um, look into the National Health Interview Survey to look at methodology. I don't know what the N is for this, like how many people were interviewed, but let me just give you the, the quick stats because that's what it's called. So 70% of um, the 70 of healthcare practitioners and technicians said that they needed to work closer than six feet from others. Then about 
um, just under 70% or maybe right around 70% of healthcare support. Not a surprise, but the third highest occupation was food preparation and serving. And it was around 60%. I think if we eyeball this, it's probably a little below 59% or something like that. That um, is, yeah, 58.9%. Uh, so, so that, you know, what this is saying is that um, that that is if you're in that occupation, you are as almost as close as healthcare support and healthcare practitioners to being around other people all the time, meaning the that physical distancing just either wasn't possible or was not practiced um in that time from July to December. So what do we extrapolate that to be? Well, I would say that food preparation and serving, you you're now you're in a much higher risk occupation for getting COVID from someone that you're working with or serving in, in the public. And, and it just, I mean, it puts an, puts a point on a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about the last two years on how important it is to focus on the health of those food preparation and serving um, individuals. Yeah. And, and, and in case you, I did find it's a little, it takes a little bit of digging, but not too much um, over 31,000 responses. Whoa. So there's a lot of data behind this. This is a massive data set. Oh, man. So, yeah. And the question was, currently your main job or business, how often do you need work to work closer than six feet to other people? Would you say all of the time, most of the time, some of the time, or none of the time? And this was the all or most of the time respondents. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, and yeah, and, and it's, you know, food, food preparation and serving is like right up there behind healthcare support and healthcare practitioners. So it's really, it's really, it's right up there. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, we, we've got this um, uh, project that you and I have been working on with Michelle Daniluk and Byron Chavez and, and a whole bunch of other folks um, called food COVID net. And one of the things, you know, certainly, We've talked a little bit about this on, on this show, but we're, we're really interested in virus persistence and, and, um, and transfer in, in food settings, but, but also this idea of what can we do to protect the, the workers and, and employees within this sector. And that's really become, I think, a much more major focus um, of our conversations over the last um, year and a half um, and, and is you know, as we hear from from stakeholders who we work with, that still they're talking very much about vaccinations and um, how how they're changing processes to make sure that they're they're protecting their workforce for for two reasons, right? Like certainly for for public health reasons, but also because the workforce is um, there. There are labor issues that that so many people are are experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it was interesting. Like I had, I got uh, tapped by um, our university media people because they're working on a piece. Is like, well, you know, now we've we've been in 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 the pandemic for quite some time. What's changed for you, and what are the big issues? And it's like, well, what's changed is people really aren't asking me. You know, should they Lysol their takeout or or quarantine their their groceries? Right. It's more like, well, how do we get back to normal? And a lot of that is focusing on what are the best practices for restaurants for food processing plants. What did we learn? Well, we learn, you know, if you're around people and you're unmasked and you're breathing heavy, you're going to spread the virus. And so let's figure out ways that we can still operate as safely as possible, you know, and keep the keep the food supply chain running. 
Yeah. I uh, sort of last, last COVID thing that I'm going to mention. Um, I went to just a really, really great restaurant um, here in Raleigh. They're, um, I, I will say friends of the show. Um, uh, but, um, and certainly um, a, fr- a friend of mine is, is the chef there. Um, her name's Chidi Kumar. The restaurant's called Garland. And uh, Chidi, I think you you participated last year, Don, in a um, a webinar or a presentation that we did from the uh, who's who's in the kitchen with Dinah Kitchens, mm-hmm. um, the Dinah uh, Igor uh, teaching and research kitchens. So so we um, Chidi was our our guest, and she talked about sort of the intersection between food and family and health, and um, and so I I got to eat at a restaurant last week. And um, she came out and, and talked to Danny and I at, at the end of the service, and we had a really nice conversation. But what, one thing that she shared was, you know, just the, I know we're all hearing about labor shortages, but I could see it in her, in her face. And as we talked about it, she, she, you know, she said, I don't have a sous chef right now. Some nights we don't yeah. have enough staff. You know, tonight was a great night that we had a full workforce of servers, but you know, she's like, I was in here all day just prepping for mm-hmm, tonight's mm-hmm. service yeah, by myself. Yeah. And that, you know, that that's not you. I, I wonder how what the long term sustainability is for chefs. You know, we had that great conversation with Matt Collins in the last episode about just challenges within the culinary scene. And, and just, you know, just just to see it as, as I talked to, to Chidi was really um it was really impactful. It made me made me think a lot about that. Just what that what that like. What's that like? Not just Friday when I was there, but over you know fifty Fridays, and you know what what that experience. How how old that that gets, and how taxing that is on um, just you know personally on someone. So I, I I don't know. I don't know what the answers are. You know, I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of folks, especially. Here, I know in in our culinary scene here in Raleigh, who are very much, um, you know, changing the and have changed over the last few years, just um, competitive wages and and um, and making sure that people are taken care of with benefits and sick pay. But it's still a challenge to get to get people that want to work in that environment, and it is not it's not an easy environment. Yeah, and it just reminds me of an article I was reading this morning in the Washington Post, which I, I put in the in the Zoom chat. Um, the headline is, In Liberty County, Workers Who Quit Feel Liberated, But the Community Discovers a Powerful Downside. It's not specifically about food, but obviously some of the jobs that people are quitting and not coming back to are jobs in, in food service. And it's just, it's a really, it's a really good and, and profound read looking at, you know, like what's happening. And it, it is, you know, again, not, not directly related to the show, but touches on it certainly. And it just, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of knock-on effects that you really just, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily foresee. And a lot of these folks are going, you know, from working these not very good jobs to working marginally better jobs in like warehouses, right? Like, like to, to service all of our, our, you know, our, our delivery culture needs, um, which, you know, which has its own consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, working with the culinary world, you know, as much as I do, the, I, what, what, there, there's going to be a ripple effect because so much of the creativity of, um, you know, taking new techniques, learning things, thinking about different um, combinations, the time that it takes to do that, it, it goes away if there's no sous chef, 
right? Like you, you right. need you need that time to to prep to keep the restaurant going, and you also need the time to be creative. And you can't have both if you don't have support to do that. And one of the things I talked to to Chidi about over the last year is she has some some interest in making some products that she would sell. Um, you know, like, like at the restaurant, but also ultimately in retail. And so, you know, we, we chatted a little bit about that and I was like, how's, how are things going? She's like, you know, I just haven't had time. I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. I don't, I don't have time to put it over the edge to make that, make that happen. And what I, like, what I worry, what I worry about the most or worried about the most as I was, um, you know, driving home and thinking about this is, you know, the, what, 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 maybe that never happens, right? Like maybe, and and if Chidi's dealing with this, then so many others I'm sure are, you know, that they may not, that, that could be a real key to their business. And, and it may just not be able to happen because of the challenges of getting people to work. And yeah, and it's complicated, right? Like it's, it's not just like, oh, go find people. It's, it's a very, it's a special environment to find the right people to work in that environment. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. For sure. Um, so I remember what I was going to tell you about, cause mm-hmm. I wrote it down on a, in a drafts note and I couldn't find Good. it. And I was like, food uh-huh. safety talk fodder is what I Perfect. entitled this. So Don, I spent last Tuesday all day, um, <laughs> talking to <laughs> six, seven. Well, you won't graders. give this up. Will you? Are no. you looking for a, a goddamn medal? I am. I am. I am. I, I, I. I, I was I was very happy to join um, Mr. Faulkner's. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, initially I thought I was going for his third period um, agricultural biotechnology uh, Mr. class. Mr. Mr. Faulkner is a wily character. He I, is. I, you want to watch him. You want to watch him carefully. Miss, so so my my son um, is in Mr. Faulkner's class and uh, is taking an agricultural biotechnology class, and and somehow it came up in a discussion that I. I do some stuff in, in food safety and agriculture and, and, and whatever. And so Mr. Faulkner reached out and said, Hey, could you come talk to my class? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. What? Yeah. When? And then, um, and then that evolved into, well, here are the things that I'd love you to talk to for periods one, two, three, and four. And here's what I'd like you to talk about in periods, you know, six, seven, eight. Um, and I was like, Whoa, okay. So, so I spent all day, uh, zooming and I didn't even go in person. Um, but we, because of, you know, COVID and not having people come into class, but I did talk to a whole bunch of sixth, seventh and eighth graders about things about food safety, biotechnology, um, and careers and being in academia and being a professor. So Don, can I tell you the things that they wanted to know about? Sure. Okay. So Number one question that I received multiple times, what is the lowest possible score that a restaurant can have and still be open, Mm -hmm. right? They wanted to know the bad, like, could you have a 50 and people would still be able to go eat there and get sick every meal, right? That that was the the viewpoint. So we talked about inspection. Interesting. And it, it came up. I mean, that was like five times that question came up. Wow. Um, they also wanted to know about the foods that I would never eat mm-hmm. and why, which is a, you know, that, that's, that's a common a, question. That's a good one. Yeah. One, my, my, my two favorite questions though, were how much money do I make? <laughs> well, right. They want to know that. They wanted to know because they wanted to know about my career. This was, 
like th this wasn't just about topics in, in science because Mr. Faulkner wanted me to talk about like how long I had to go to school for and what do I do? Well, I was going to say like how much money you make is second behind how many years after you graduated from high school did yes. you have to go to school? And then also how hard did you have to work in your current job to be making the amount of money you make? Right, right, right. But those, those are much more, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm going to study food so I can make a lot of money like Professor Chapman. It's like, no, Professor Chapman worked really hard for a really long time. <laughs> How much does he make? He's much make... less money than he would make in the food industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so I answered this in a very, I don't know, coy way. I'm like, I, I make I make good, you know, good money, make decent money. Everything's yeah, good. I mean, he probably my makes family... more than the principal of the school we were going yeah. to. Yeah, my family, my family is taken care of. I'm very happy with my lifestyle and, and the money I make. Um, yes. But the follow-up question, and this one really took the cake, Don, after I said that, the same student said, are you retiring soon? <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I said, no, why? Do you want my job? And he goes, yeah. maybe. And I was like, all right, cool. This is oh. good. He's got his eye. He's the, he's right, going to be the next. Right. Yeah, he's, he's working towards this. He's in, and, and I'll tell you, the timing might, might add up. He's in seventh grade. By the uh -huh. time, by the time he gets into, you know, position to be a, um, you know, starting as an assistant professor, I might be retiring. <laughs> it's my, I might, I might've found my replacement this, you know, the, that on that, on that day. So anyway, it was, it was, it was enjoyable. It was really cool to think about, you know, certainly I talk about food safety to journalists a lot. I don't talk to food safety to, um, to a lot of like sixth, seventh and eighth graders. Uh, and their questions were like, truthfully, Don, pretty similar. They wanted yeah. to know about things that that they eat. They wanted to know about things that might make them sick, what it's like to to have foodborne illness. Um, what are the cool things that are that people are doing in genetics to to uh, you know bioengineer food? They wanted to talk about that. Um, it was. Yeah, well, it what was, is the lowest good. score, Ben, that a restaurant can have and still remain open? Well, so you know what? what so <laughs> I, I answer that. Well, what I said was, you know, I, I told them I think you know here in North Carolina, it's not about scores. It, mm -hmm. It's actually right. a little bit difficult to close a restaurant. Um, and and our friend Noro Nerd um, mm -hmm. would would be able to to answer this question better than I could. But she described mm -hmm. to me one time when I asked a similar question, like, "What does it take?" She's like, you know local health department has to go in front of a judge or a magistrate right. to shut a restaurant right. down. And it's not about the score. It's about how, how terrible the situation is. Like you can make them throw out food, but, but even that sometimes needs to have like a court injunction. Um, so, so that, you know, it, it, it's like, are people at, at risk of getting sick because you saw something right now? Um, right. But the score itself, and this is what I kind of explained to, to, to the six, seven, and eight year old or six, grade, uh, six, seven, and eight graders. And I think they got it. It's the score actually tells you as the patron, right? What, how well they're doing against the regulation. And you get to choose whether you go in there or not. And I really like that, that, that situation. And so then the follow up question became, well, what score is the lowest that you've seen and still seen people eating there? Mm. And, and Don, the lowest that I can remember seeing here in my state is a 68. I believe wow. it was a D and there were wow. still people in it. Yeah. Wow. 
But but then I, I explained to them, look, there's there are situations where we've had outbreaks, multi, you know, hundreds of people getting sick from a restaurant. And because that restaurant is so important to the people that live in that community, mm-hmm. that they go extra to show support for that restaurant, which I, I think is also a, a very odd situation, right? Like, well, brave, I, brave and a little bit foolish, right? But I've, they've never made me sick. I've been eating here for 20 oh, years. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. will be yeah. here to yeah. show support for this restaurant because, you know, damn it. They didn't need, mean to make these people sick. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, so, so any, anyway, yeah, that was my, that was my experience, uh, being a, a substitute teacher for a day. <laughs> yeah. I hope, I uh, hope Mr. Wes's butt, uh, <laughs> Gave you a nice gift. Yeah, well, maybe I got. Yeah, should I should answer the kid who asked how much I make? And I was like, make more than I do uh, being a substitute teacher in your class today, buddy. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice one. It's good to locate my bell again. Yes. Um. So there, there are a couple of things I put in. I, I know we have some some feedback mm-hmm. as well, but there are a couple of things I wanted to um, ask you about that I put sure. into the Dropbox. Have you, um, did, did you see, oh gosh, let me find it here. I want to get it right. Knowing exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. There's a document in there that is entitled new era outbreak response independent. And it Uh is a Um, the title, you'll see this is an independent review of FDA's foodborne outbreak response processes. Are you, are you familiar with this document? Did you, have you seen this? Um, I don't, I, it sounds vaguely familiar, but so tell me more. Yeah. So it came across my, my desk, um, a couple of days ago, I saw it in, in one of the, one of the trade rags, uh, and, um, a uh, friend, friend of ours, someone who we know, Craig Hedberg, uh, professor, University of Minnesota School of Public Health, uh, wrote this independent assessment. Oh, yeah. Cool. So this is no, really I have not cool. seen this. It is. I, I, I'm. You've got some homework because it's 45 okay. pages. We're not going to. Um, but I, I read this. Uh, I read this this week. It's. It's really. It's really quite good. Um, not. And I'm. I'm not saying that like I'm surprised. I know we. We both know Craig, and I, Craig's Craig, an extremely. Craig does, yeah. yeah. He's he's great. He's he's fantastic, but he's also extremely thoughtful. He's one of the one of the smartest um, one of the smartest people I've I've encountered in food safety. Where he he mm. really looks at big picture and very complex practical issues um, or complex issues practically is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. But he did a really nice job reviewing a, 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 a lot of documents that FDA has, and this is part of new the uh, you. Um, FDA's new era blueprint was was to review this, not review, but to, to to actually have an independent review of what they do in in outbreaks, put it together, and then put it sort of out into the into the world and say this isn't a GAO review, this isn't an FDA review, this isn't even an AFTO review. The Association of Food and Drug Officials, who we also know and love, great organization, but they're not. You know, they're certainly not FDA, but they're they're close enough that they're they are um, they represent F, um, regulators. So Craig's outside of that. He right. so so one thing that I want to highlight that I thought were really interesting. So if you go to page 
19 of this document. So, so he conducted some interviews um, as part of this review. And, you know, I love, I love an interview, Don, you know, I'm a qualitative mm -hmm. researcher. I love, I love the quantitative. I love the quantitative, but he talked about, or in this, there were some major issues that came up that I thought were really interesting. Um, so the, the first bullet point, um, and so again, these major common themes emerged from different groups of stakeholders that were interviewed. Major issues that were raised by multiple stakeholders were presented first, followed by the summaries of individual stakeholder groups. Major issues, communication with investigation partners and industry. So this is during an outbreak investigation. There's a perception that a culture of withholding information goes beyond actual legal restraints on sharing information. This affects many aspects of outbreak investigations and response. And this is something that I think you and I have talked about and heard um, in our you Absolutely. Know, in, in our experiences, right? Like what the what FDA might be doing, they may know and have a lot of information. And I'm not going to call anybody out, but let's just say that there are, um, I don't know, pathogens that um, that rhyme with microflora. Um, where, where this comes up often in text chains that we have, where there's decisions that are being made on outbreaks that, that no one, academia or industry partners who are really trying to be part of this solution, don't have all the information, don't know what, how FTA is making decisions, and there might not be a lot of communication. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, the last bullet in this that I thought was really important for, for FDA to think about is lack of resources. There are, we, and I think you and I have seen this and we talk about this on Food Safety Talk. There are often times where there are three or four major investigations that are going on. And so they, um, what stakeholders told, you know, to, you know, I guess told, told Craig as part of this was that there are lack of resources um, within FDA and stakeholders think that the number of concurrent investigations frequently stretches the capacity of the outbreak uh, resp um, response team. And I thought that was really, you know, I think that's really, really key. Um, the other thing that I wanted to highlight on this was, um, let me find where, um, big, big, I guess, conclusions and recommendations that Craig made that I thought were really good was increasing the partnerships between FDA, CDC, and USDA, FSIS on these outbreaks because each of those agencies have different mandates but are often have to work together on sharing information in many of these outbreaks. And, and that, so... So that, that is, they have been working, but they need to work more and, and do it in a more purposeful and open way. Um, and, and then the, the, this, this is on page um, 28 that I, I really highlighted in, in my thoughts that I thought was good is that FDA working with CDC and state partners to develop a formal protocol to conduct informational tracebacks to support epidemiological investigations needed to identify suspected food items. That's a long sentence, but I think it, it spells out exactly what we, you and I don't often see, but I think many of our partners who are part of these investigations share is that every outbreak, it's kind of different on what information gets requested and who it gets requested from and where it goes and who analyzes it. 
and, and how this all works. And sometimes that, you know, if there was a systematic way to do this, they would really, it would really improve future outbreaks. So I, I anyway, I really thought about, um, I, I really thought that Craig did a great job on this and it was a pleasure to read it. Yeah. So you got some homework. It's a good, uh, it's a, it's a good document. And I think it, it provides a good foundation for those who might write like, I don't know, pre-doc or post-doc NIFA um, applications. You want to do work in this area, uh, maybe AFRI proposals. I think it provides a really nice foundation on where to go when working with FDA. So it's, uh, it's cool. It's good. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's it. I, I, I sent it to OmniFocus. Oh, it's there as homework. Well, good job. Good job. Um, the other thing that, um, that we have in, in our Dropbox that I wanted to, to talk about, and, and this might take a little more time. This might be the one, I don't know. Um, have you, so the FDA announced a proposed rule cha changing an, uh, an earlier proposed rule for um, agricultural water. Have you have you been involved in any of the discussions around this over the last week? This this all came out, I guess, about a week ago, week and a half ago. I I have not. I am actually getting a briefing on this topic on Friday. Well, when am I when am I getting a briefing? No, no, it's not Friday. It's going to be Monday, I think. When is it? Son of a gun. Oh, well, hold on. I don't know. I know I know I've got something on my calendar here at some point. I thought I did. Um when the heck is that? Um Oh, here we go. Yes, on Friday. Okay. Um I am getting uh I'm getting briefed uh by um <laughs> Laura Strawn, uh Faith uh Kreitzer, uh, Michelle Danilek, etc. And so oh. Well, the, I, the, I, so it, it, the title of the meeting is uh, Proposed Ag Water Rule Discussion Hour. Oh, good. Well, so, so and, and the idea is, so I'm giving, so this is part of Michelle Danilux, uh contact grant, uh, which is on fresh produce, food safety, has a specific component on ag water that's being led by uh, Channa Rock. And I've got to give a, I've committed to give a webinar to our stakeholders on risk risk assessment and fresh produce and and it was going to be sort of a generic talk and it might now be focusing on like okay what is the risk assessment component of the what's in this ag water uh rule so uh and, but i have i've i've really i'm very lazy ben i have not done anything to educate myself because uh, i'm just assuming that people are just gonna at some point open up my brain and pour pour the information in that i need excellent. to know excellent well well i'm gonna give you like a little bit of um, perspective on this. Okay. So, um, you know, there, there was a proposed rule that came out a, a few years ago that had some metrics associated with it. And this new proposed rule, so there was, I think there was a lot of feedback. And in fact, I'll see if I can find the paper. Michelle, friend of the show, Michelle Danilock, who's going to give you a briefing on this, um, wrote a paper that I constantly point to that I think of as ag water, um, let's see if I can find it while we talk about this. Es essentially that the ag water, the proposed rule was too strict and not strict enough. 
Huh. Okay. Right. Like depending on the pathogen that you were, right. that you were looking at um, and depending on the location, like it was, it was exactly this. So um, yeah, I just found the, found the paper. This was published. She, she um, Michelle, uh, um, other, other folks who you'll be familiar with, or at least at least one other person, Ari Havilar was the lead author on this, um, this, this paper. And I really liked, I really liked this, this paper a lot because I think it showed the complexity of coming up with a threshold for a rule. So, um, you could, you know, they looked at a bunch of ponds. Um, and so essentially 20, you know, well, and we should maybe have Michelle on to talk about this a little bit because I think she'll do a much better job. But depending on, you know, like from the abstract, E. coli was an adequate predictor of the presence of salmonella in 150 mil samples and turbidity was second significant variable. The variable variability levels in E. coli in agricultural water was higher than anticipated when the PSR was finalized and more detailed information based on mechanic mechanistic modeling is necessary to develop targeted risk management strategies. But I think what they found was like, it was great, maybe good enough for salmonella, but not good enough for looking for pathogenic E. coli. So depends on the pathogen you're looking for, but one number uh, is one set of standards wasn't enough or it was too strict. Yeah. In so in my, my, my connection to this paper, and if actually, if we're going to have somebody on it, it probably should be Ari, but yeah. actually the best person to have on might actually be me. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> and that is because Michelle asked me to give a talk at IAFP, the last IAFP before the pandemic and, and, and to specifically talk about this issue. And so I read this paper and I made some slides and I explained it. And then I will always remember this because uh, I have the hugest amount of respect from Ari came up to me after he says that was that was really good i think you explained it better than we did in the paper <laughs> well that's good well i'm gonna give a shout out to michelle because i saw her present this data before it was um published published uh -huh. yeah at an iafp and it must have been like a 2016 or it might have been yeah. the 2017 meeting and i'll, I'll tell you she, she doesn't listen to the show anymore because she was banned but unbanned then uh from listening to the show so someone else who listens to the show can tell her I actually think it was the best talk I've ever seen at IFB. Wow. I, yeah, cool. I was like really proud to be to be her, her oh, friend and yeah. colleague, and yeah. it was just like she, you know, for for a really complicated rule, it, she she both told me why this was the right number and why it was the wrong number, right? And and I loved it, and that was right. like man, that I didn't see that coming, right? Like I didn't I didn't yeah. see it coming at all. So so anyway, um. But so here's the new situation. We'll link to this um, in show notes. Um, FDA came out with new proposed rules on agricultural water that take away all the numbers. Oh, I just sent it to you again. Mm -hmm. uh, and essentially it says now producers are going to have to come up with an agricultural water assessment and figure out what their own numbers are. And the, that assessment's going to have to include this is so so I'm going to give you my take on this and then I'm going to give you someone else's take on it who texted me about it and I will not out them um, to protect the innocent as well. Um, so, you know, it says as a producer, you're going to have to figure out you got to look at factors, including agricultural water systems, practices, crop characteristics, environmental conditions, and then any other relevant factors that can inform assessment. And then you need to come up with your own numbers that are based on your situation, based on these factors, and you need to adhere to those 
And we're going to give you some guidance on how to do that. That's how I read the rule. Yeah, Essentially, here, that's, here, that's ag it. producers. How much rope would you like? Yes. And so I thought my initial read on this, Don, being very naive, was, mm -hmm. you know what? This is actually allows for a risk-based approach, right? This allows for, if, if someone was to do this, individual producers to say, I'm going to be, I'm going to, and this is where I got naive, I think. I'm going to actually look at risk. I'm going to look at my specific situation. I'm going to apply numbers and I'm going to justify those numbers. And, and someone who's a regulator is going to look at those and say, yeah, you, you picked the right numbers. This is actually, I think is very much in line with per, the preventive controls rule, which right. is you look at your process, you're going to be trained in how to do this because you've got to have a qualified individual. And then we're going to, when we come out to inspect, we're going to say, Hey, are you doing this? And then demonstrate to us that, you know, the flip side of that, and I will read from a, um, a, a again, a, a text message, you know, if you really want to know, go ahead and FOIA me uh, for it. <laughs> um, and uh, I, don't, I don't think this podcast is subject to FOIA rules. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Complete BS. <laughs> this is quoting. <laughs> they give produce everything they want. We, and, and again, this is, I, I won't give enough information to figure this person out, but we are using science to ju justify our policy changes for specific pathogens. And FDA doesn't give an inch. The produce industry just said, quote, it'll be difficult for us in FDA caves. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think it's probably somewhere in between my naivety and this, and this comment, but, but, you know, it's a, it's a left turn from the, the previous proposed rule, which was, um, you know, have, take a bunch of samples, a minimum 20 samples for E. coli over two to four years, geometric mean level of E. coli should not exceed 126 CFU per hundred mils. And the statistical threshold value SCV should not exceed 410 CFU for, per 100 mils. Like that's what, what it was. Right. <laughs> and now it's, yeah, you figure out what your right numbers are. This might be suitable for you, but each individual producer and really each individual site is going to have to take these factors. Water system practices, crop characteristics, environmental conditions, and other relevant factors, and apply their knowledge and the best available science to it. So, so I don't know if producers can do this. I'm, I mean, that's really up to the produce world. I don't know if they know what what they've asked for and what they received here. But you know, maybe after you talk to Laura and Faith and, and Michelle about it on Friday, we can talk about it um, in the new year. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I mean, it's, I do, I do like the idea that FDA is giving producers flexibility. My concern is that the producers are not going to know what to do with that, right? Yes. Like, I don't think that they have the skills or the ability to, 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 to address this. Now, maybe that's an opportunity for academics, you know, to develop 
um, risk assessments or risk modeling tools. Sure. Yes. Um, but that's going to take time and that's going to take resources. Right. And so where's, where's the time going to come from? Where's the, where are the resources going to come from? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 in principle, I like it. Right. But, but yeah. I'm, but I'm a naive academic. Right. And I really, what I really want to do is sit down. Well, and, and I think, and Chana probably has a pretty, and she'll, and she'll be on the call on Friday as well. She's really, you know, tied into ag water. Like she's leading the ag water objective on Michelle's grant. I'm yeah. very knowledgeable about these, these topics, but I also want to talk to folks from uh, Western growers and United fresh, et cetera, to kind of get, their perspective. And, and it's not even that, right? I also want to talk with, with Wes Klein and Meredith Melendez to find out like, what does, what are they going to do to help our New Jersey growers deal with this, right? Because it's one thing for Western growers or United Fresh or Produce Marketing Association that have, you know, people and money and resources, right? Um, to, to solve the problem for their members or, or yeah for their members versus like what's a one-off new jersey farmer gonna do right and right. then and then the other question is like what's the what's the role of the supermarkets in this is is wegman's going to assist its growers with this right i mean it's etc cetera, etc cetera. um i don't know i mean it's certainly it certainly has and the other thing too that's in the that's in the memo from um um uh, what's their butt? Um, the, uh, the the law firm, uh, OWF, uh, Olson, Frank, Weida. Like what's, like one of the things that, that's in that memo is that uh, the existing compliance dates for the ag water provisions of the produce safety rule are not being extended by this proposed rule. And right. so the deadlines, the dates are still there. Dates right? are still there. Um, yeah, January t- uh, 26, 2022. That's next year, Ben right yes that's right here right like that's next year that's um that's two weeks from now that's there's no way right 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 well and it's still in proposed rule right like it's yeah that's what's weird like why wait am i reading that correctly is that that mean that they're gonna have to go away they have to comply with subpart e this is so complicated ben it would be a full-time job for somebody who wasn't lazy to keep up with this. And I, 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 I need, I just need, I just need somebody to give me pigs and bunnies, you know? Yeah. Just <laughs> tell me what it says. Just explain it to pigs and bunnies, please. Yeah. 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 yeah tell me what happened on Friday. I, it was some other podcast. I don't know who said this. Mm-hmm. Someone said, explain this to me in star Wars, uh-huh. <laughs> which I like, do you know, have you heard that on a podcast before? Explain that to me in star Wars. No. Yeah. So explain this to me in star Wars terms. Like what, what is, like, is this, is, is, is the water, is this Darth Vader and, and Boba Fett? Like what's happening here? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, but I like, I'm with you. Like, this is where, like I said, my, my initial thought here was this is actually much more potentially much more risk-based based, and it might allow some of the trade organizations like the leafy greens marketing agreement, like the Florida tomato growers group um, to say, okay, you know what, here's what we're going to do for our specific commodities and our specific farms. And, and if you're going to be part of us, this matters more than what was proposed, but I think it leaves it open for so many small and medium-sized growers that don't have those, those connections. They may be just out left and not, you know, without anything to, to, without the ability to figure this out. Yeah. Um, in, without resources, I shouldn't say ability, but without resources, they're trying to grow crops at the same time as they're trying to conduct, you know, assessments. Um, yeah. 
Hey, so um, someone's at my door. I'm gonna run okay. and then I'll okay. be right back. Okay. okay. All right, I'm back. So I, I I know what I'm getting you for Christmas. Oh, what? It's, a, it's an on-air wall-mountable <gasps> and desktop light. Oh, <laughs> I, you know what I want to do? Is it, can I flip a switch? Is it a, I, I wanna, I'm going to put it on the outside of my my door and yeah. maybe I'll have like an under under the desk switch <laughs> that sends it by a Bluetooth. So, I, don't, I don't think it has that, but you could at least mount it on your door and then, and then turn it on record recording in progress yeah, yeah exactly yep. oh that's funny yeah well you know sometimes now don there there are things that uh i don't know people people need to ask a question right then and and this one did was they, did they well, did they really need to ask it right then well it, it was so i'll tell you the the question had already been answered um oh wait they, is this is this is this part of the the 80 20 rule no no okay. it's not no no this was a this is not so i have i have some water that's in my car that that is for graduation today and uh right. um the folks want to know if they could get my keys to my car but i left my car open so the water could be removed so they didn't have my keys you know what hey speaking of cars and weird things you know what i did maybe for the first time ever yesterday what um my I ran my battery out and had to get booster jumped. Oh, on your car? My car. Yeah. Ooh. I sat in my car for about 20 oh. minutes with the radio on and the seat warmer. Oh. And, and and it and it drained my battery, which there might be a problem with my battery I, that yeah, seemed I'm, like I'm, short. But also I'm pretty sure the radio didn't do it, but it might have been the seat warmer. It's probably the seat warmer. Yeah. Um so yeah. Anyway, I had to get someone to jump me and my, the, I, I had a kid in the car who got really excited that I was, that we had to push my car out of a parking space and figure out how to put it in neutral. And so anyway, it all, it all worked out. And then I got in my car this morning, started and it was great. So I think my battery is fine. I think I just drained it. Yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly why I pay for AAA every year. Well, <laughs> Even so I never use it. Yeah. Yeah. But this was at 10 15 last night after hockey practice and it was easier to find someone to jump me oh, um, than, yeah. than it would have been waiting wait for, for AAA. Yep. For AAA. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, child, uh, child of the year, Jack needed to get home to get to sleep so I could get him up at 6.15 to go to school this morning. And so, but you didn't have cables, right? You had to no, find somebody. I had to who, find somebody. Who, who, number one had cables and number two was willing to jump you. But there's, yep. it's hockey dads, right? Like there's gotta be yep. some guy in a pickup truck that's, that's got cables, right? Yep, yep. Good. It was a friend <laughs> friend and co-coach co Matt Cross helped me out. There you go. Um, and now I have jumper cables in my car because I have wow. jumper cables, but I never had put, they were in my garage, which mm. is the, probably the place that they would get used the least. Well- Probably, but here's the thing: until you found that you needed them, that was a good place to keep them. It was because I now could put them in the car. Exactly. So, but we decided that they will exist in one of the two cars that okay. we have from from here on out. Well, uh, probably the car that the battery died most recently in. Yes, that's yes. how I would suggest that you do it. Yep. Um, 
So a couple other things. I want to give a shout out, Dawn, to, to someone who I, I don't know if I don't know if this is OPSEC. So you tell me um, if this we're, I don't know if we're going to um, I, I actually I'm just going to I'm just going to come out and say it. And then afterwards, you tell me if, if, if we're uh, I'm sharing too much on the Internet um, okay. some, after you shared it after because I can cut it out. Oh, and you'll okay. just say, right. Cause I'm, I can edit this out and, and you get to cut it, cut it out. Got so, it. so we received just a very, very unexpected, nice email yesterday mm-hmm. from Michael Calhoun and Michael writes, Dr. Don, professor Chapman, this is just following up on a risky or not submission. Holiday cheer is attached. And he sent us a picture uh, of what I believe is the Calhoun family Christmas card that on the front is, it is a, just lovely, beautiful pictures of, of just a fantastic looking family, a mom and the dad and two kids. The kids look like they're maybe three and five. All four of the Calhouns are wearing red, it's complicated and it depends t-shirts. <laughs> And the the back of the card, or maybe it's the front of the card, says "Make food safety a holiday tradition." It, this this warmed my heart, Dawn. Mm-hmm. This this was this was wonderful. Um, shout out to, um, to to Mike and and Melissa and in the the Calhoun family. Um, if if you um, if you listen to this show and you received this card, I think it's amazing. Um, if you don't listen to the show and you've stumbled upon the show now because you saw the card and tried to figure out why they're wearing a it's complicated and depends t-shirt, I think that's also amazing. Uh, I just thought that this was this was super, super cool. And it made me we you know, the the uh is it, I'm not sure if it's a trope or if it's a bit, but we say this all the time. We would do this show just to talk to each other. And but this made me feel like we had hit the big time when someone's buying our t-shirts and putting them on their Christmas cards. It was like, whoa, this is super cool. This made me feel cool. So and I I I mean, I I honestly I think we should ask Michael. Um, well, we should we could ask him if we can mention him. And then also honestly, I we should ask him if we can use this as the show art. Oh, yes. I mean, I will. If, if, if nothing else, like just with like black, um, you know, bars across their eyes. <laughs> yeah, 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 but exactly. Um, I will, I will do that. Um, so, and also, and I don't want to, yeah, well, yeah, we're, we're going to do that. So I'm going to ask him. Okay, cool. Um, so that was, that was follow-up number one. Um, just thank, thank you again for, uh, for sharing that. Um, Follow up number two. Oops, I'm, I'm skipping skipping in into to places. We got a we got a nice. Um, well, as as always, uh, Deep New England asked us a really great question, and um, I wanted to to give some space for for this. This is something that we we've talked about a few times on the podcast, um, but um, but we're um, you know it's, it's worth revisiting. So um, uh, Deep New England writes, hi, Don, and the hipster formerly known as Ben Chapman, which is great because I can't even remember where that came from. Uh, and 
Uh, New England writes, great show, fun recap of Ben's style drama. So I'm sure I was talking about my clothing uh, or something. Food safety question. I was just asked why honey sometimes contains botulinum spores that can cause infant botulism, but maple syrup does not, or at least maple syrup has not been found to contain botulinum spores so far. Most honey and all maple syrup is pasteurized and raw honey is not differentiated from pasteurized honey as having a higher level of infant botulism risk. So what is it about honey that, uh, that allows for uh, botulinum spores to be there, but not in maple syrup? And I'll, I'll just sort of like make that a little bit, little bit different. I think it's more about why is honey associated with infant botulism cases, uh, but not maple syrup or, or other things. And so so I, you know, I responded, my, my quick answer was, you know, we, meaning the world of food safety, doesn't really have a handle on this. We've looked at this uh, a bunch to talk about. I've, I've done it. And, and I think that there is um, botulinum spores can be found in molasses and in corn syrup and in, um, and I think in maple syrup as well, but it just hasn't been linked to, um, to illnesses but we do, we don't really have a good guess um, as to why. And then you followed up with a few uh, with, with a few articles. So I just wanted to to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and so let's let's just talk about the what the articles show. Um, <clears throat> first one is by uh, uh, Don Cowder. Uh, that's Don Cowder Senior. Uh, it looks like there's a typo in his name too. That's weird. Um, uh, Ten categories of infant foods from the Washington D.C. area. Seabot spores detected in two of 100 samples of honey and eight of 40 samples of corn syrup. Um, uh, in an ensuing nationwide survey of corn syrup, seabot spores were detected in five of 961. Uh, another study by uh, Timothy Lilly et al, including Don Cowder as a senior, as a co-author, as well as Jeffrey Roadhamel, friend of the pod, and Haim Solomon, who was also mentioned in a recent um, Risky or Not, or Risky or Not that will post in the future. Um, 739, 738 bottles of corn syrup were sampled, um, one each of 354 light and 271 dark corn syrups was presumptively positive, but subsequent testing revealed both bottles to be negative. All other 113 syrups were negative. So again, that's showing um, absence in uh, however many uh, maple syrup samples were tested. And then finally, uh, article uh, from Journal Food Protection uh, by Hothchild et al. So this is some, looks like some non-FDA authors, 150 honey 43 syrup and 40 dry cereal samples were analyzed for seabot spores. Um, foods, uh, let's see, foods are sampled randomly except two lots of honey, which were associated with illness. Spores were detected in a sample of honey associated with illness and in a single sample of rice cereal. So it's out there yeah. in these kind of foods, but it for, I mean, you've, you nailed it, right? We just, we just don't know why it's not in maple syrup. Uh, something, something about the honey production process, something about the corn syrup production process leads to spores, something about maple syrup production does not lead to spores. So, but, 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 but you're absolutely right. Pasteurization has, has nothing to do with it. Yeah. That's, and that's what I said. It's, it's this red herring. I think people right. look at that. I think, I think if I remember correctly, we, I talked to someone about this at FDA recently and that, um, there are, you know, there's the potential for less spores and filtered 
honey versus unfiltered honey, but it doesn't mean that filtered honey has zero spores. It's right. just that there's more in the, because the what, the particulates that those spores are sticking to might get st- stuck in the in the filtering process. So right. something gets filtered out, but it's not it's not zero. And we definitely have had infant botulism cases linked to honey consumption of filtered honey as well. So yeah, I just it's a it's a weird one. This is one of those like mysteries that that I'm I'm always like hoping that we'll see some sort of like a breakthrough that we understand more about it. Um, but how do you, but I mean, how, how do you understand why something is not in something? Well, right? but I don't like, think it's, you can understand why it is in something, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but I, so I, I guess there's, there's two things. I, I think it's not even just about in it or not in it. I think there's something like the molasses one I find really interesting because they don't like, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't think we've had any cases of infant botulism associated with, with that and there are bot spores in molasses and maybe it's about consumption i was gonna right. say who's feeding their kid molasses i don't know who's feeding their kid molasses honey. is pretty molasses oh honey but honey yeah, is sweet guess, molasses is, is a pretty or corn syrup well, right yeah. Let's, right yeah, like well but maybe there's something what's the promotive i was gonna say what's the opposite of protective in honey something mm. that that is that allows for that bot spore to become more likely to not pass through the gut, I guess, in when it's consumed with honey. I don't know. Like that's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm really interested in, mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe like, may, maybe, like you said, maybe it's an epidemiological um, issue where the, the denominator is our problem here, where we're only seeing the infant, the very few infant botulism cases associated with honey because the consumption of honey compared to the others is much higher. Well, and I think that there's some papers out there about infant botulism in, in dust, right? Yes. Like, like yeah. there's been cases where infants have been close to construction where it just puts, you know, there's just spores in the dust and the infants put their fingers in the dust and they put their fingers in their mouth and they ingest the spores. Like, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely a, you know, denominators risk factor at play here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, absolutely. But I think that, you know, I, I still think we, we just, we don't know. Right. Like that's the, there's, there's still a mystery to this. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. then there's epidemiology, right? So, yeah. And there's, yeah, there's an article that we'll link to. There's a couple articles on risk factors for infant botulism, um, at, at which we, which we'll, we will link to actually there's a bunch of articles. So yeah. 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 It's, um, this is a, it's a good one. Anyway, thanks to deep New England. Thanks again to deep new England again, uh, for, for following up with us and getting us to, to revisit this. This is one that came up for me a lot when I was, when I had infants mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and the, you, what started me on this path. And I think I've told this story here is um, the uh, getting a question actually through the um, information center that we used to run at the university of Guelph before I had kids um, about the safety of um, feeding Honey Nut Cheerios to infants. Oh, because of honey. Yeah. yeah. And and I was like, that's stupid. Of course you can feed Honey Nut Cheerios to kids. And the more that we investigated this story, and I remember calling like General Mills, this has got to be back in like 2006 mm-hmm. or 2007, and talking with someone there and they're like, yeah, we don't, we would not suggest you do that because it is honey. This mm-hmm. is actual honey, and we're right. not validating this process to 
inactivate any bot spores. So if the spores are there, they're there. Don't, right. don't give that to kids. And I was like, man, okay. And then I remembered that a lot when, you know, the, like the, just when, when I had kids and my kids ate a lot of Cheerios, but not a lot of honey nut Cheerios um, for, for infant bot reasons. And I was probably like, you know, going to our other show, I think it's pretty clear that I'm pretty risk averse. And when it mm-hmm. came to my, my kids and infants, like I was the go wake up a kid up in the middle of the night because I couldn't hear him breathing kind mm-hmm. of situation mm-hmm. a lot. And, and where, where Danny, who is tired and said, if, if he, <laughs> if he's dead, there's not much we can do. Just go back to sleep. <laughs> like, oh, such a wise okay. woman. Yep. Okay. Good. Good call. She's like, we probably missed the window to save him. So yep. we'll just deal with it in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, all right. So it's morbid, practical. but practical. No, it's practical. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, any, is there any other follow-up you wanted to wanted to talk through? Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Ruan. Um, so we got a text message from our friend uh, Michelle who says, "I just met someone who oh, knew yeah. me from your podcast. Can you give a shout out to Ruan, uh, second year MS student working in Cyclospora at UGA?" And uh, Michelle says she asks good questions. So, and she listens to both podcasts. So, uh, and, and Michelle writes, the long one is just perfect for her extractions. I don't know exactly what that means, but we're, Rowan, uh, pleasure to have you as a listener. We're, we're glad, uh, we're, we're glad that you're listening and we're glad we can help you with your long extractions. Yes, that's our, that is really our goal. And yeah. And, and the other thing I want to read this. So we really, what we need, Ben, is we need an AI uh, in which to download Carl Custer's uh, brain. Okay, oh. um, so I have to. I want to read this, and then we'll uh, we'll 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 put a couple of links in, uh, and I'll, I'll read this as best I can verbatim. Um, uh, he says, uh, "Bleeping ignoramai who skipped fourth grade thermodynamics." You know, so again, very very much no context. Um, once upon a time. FSQS slash FSIS had a non-regulatory rule in the manual of inspection. Cooked food had to be cooled from 120 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit in two hours. That's really fast, Ben. Or if it is a, quote, large mass, then it only had to be shoved into a 40 degree Fahrenheit cooler. Okay. That makes sense. It makes no sense, but yes. Um, I bugged the microbiology division for the basis of that rule. I had moved on to PPID in 1980. And again, I'm not sure, these are all acronyms that don't exist anymore, but basically Carl, this is Carl's career path through USDA, okay? So he, he so he's at some point he's in this thing called PPID. Um, the response was, quote, that's how fast wieners can be cooled. The stimulus for my question was processors who would put chili bricks in a box and move it into a cooler because they couldn't cool the individual bricks to 40 degrees Fahrenheit in two hours. History, 120 to 55 in six hours was based on OEA and Scott. Ralph Johnston implemented the 120 the 120 degrees Fahrenheit about 1974 based on Clostridium botulinum only. That was the manual of inspection policy, 120 to 40 in two hours, or if the product's a large mass, simply put into 140, into a 140 cooler. Really, I'm not kidding, right? So he's re-emphasizing this, uh, this, this bit of silliness. Um, 
When the last iteration of the roast beef rule was being developed in 1981 to 83, Ralph eased the, the two-hour rule to four hours. By that time, I was over in PPID, and I knew something about physics and growth dynamics. I also knew that 40 degrees Fahrenheit in four hours was a BS target. So I whipped out Oye and Scott, just enough to beat you, and put, that's me editorializing, yeah, yeah. put their graphs in tables with the calculator and graph paper pre-visicalc and showed that 120 to 60 in six hours would keep the CBOT spores from outgrowth. Plus, in the event outgrowth did occur from the heat shock, multiplication would be minimal. Ron Prusha objected to the 60 because he it was a new temperature and that might be confusing to inspectors. I'm still not kidding. And this Carl has remarked before on this, this idea of new temperatures. It's like, well, we we, we can't use a new temperature. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm pretty sure all the temperatures are there. But anyway, right, right, right. So, yeah, but anyway, new temperature. So he put in the 55 degree target from 9 CFR. 381.55. Roast beef processors rejoice. Other processors wanted to use the 120 to 55 in six hours instead of the draconian but silly, but silly 120 to 40 in two hours unless it's a large mass policy. Ralph wouldn't agree. We think he was pissed because it wasn't his idea. There's a long history of him rejecting not invented here ideas and apologies carl i you're probably safe from any retribution from ralph if, if ralph is still alive but we're putting this in the show yeah um, this is yeah stan green said ralph was concerned because roasts were solid pieces and processors wanted to use the six hour rule for comminuted products although chopped and formed beef came under the roast beef rule i asked ralph i asked I asked, was Ralph concerned about Clostridium perfringens? A few days later, Stan said yes. And there's an asterisk there. I'm not sure why. Um, so I worked with Ralph Blankenship, USDA ARS, on his chili cooling studies, mostly defining the problem and obtaining chili. I also grabbed Bushta's sea perfringens growth during rising temperatures, Willardson and Bushta, question mark, and some other papers and put them into a VisiCalc spreadsheet. By then we had computers. Roy also pulled up Shigesa, Shiga something, anyway, another paper, which I'll we'll link to. Graph data went from graphs to spreadsheets and data from spreadsheets to graphs. Brows were furrowed and heads were scratched. The top growth temperatures for Clostridium perfringens IIRC was 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So I rounded up to 130 gives you a chuckle when you consider CFP's agony over reducing hot holding temperatures from 140 to 135. The inflection point in the curve appears to be 80 degrees Fahrenheit, IIRC, so I dropped it to 75 Fahrenheit. Two hours from 130 to 75, according to Roy's, Frank's, and Shiga something's data, appeared to keep clostridium perfringens tamed. Thus, the cooling regime went, went around that went around for under the table review was 130 Fahrenheit to 75 Fahrenheit in two hours and then to 40 within another six to eight hours. Comments were favorable, except Terry Roberts, uh, the well-known United Kingdom modeler uh, and, and sort of the godfather of predictive modeling on the other side of the Atlantic, doubted the UK cold chain could accomplish it. And John Sophos asked something about the Phoenix phenomenon. I think John was stretching. Back in the USDA, when the draft cooling proposal went around, politics reigned over science. 
130 to 75 in two hours was rejected because we had been enforcing 120 to 40 in two hours. This would give industry ammunition to sue individuals who's been, who've been enforcing that policy. You see how I got this way, says Carl. Yes, Carl. Yes, Carl. So after much agonizing and recalculating, 130 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit in one and one half hours was accepted and writ in the granite of the directives for cooling heated products. Dan screwed with it a bit, I think that's Dan Engeljohn, when he moved the directive to Appendix B. So there you have it. Laws and sausages and laws about sausages, folks. That's how they get made. Oh, man. Um, Anyway, so we will uh, we'll we'll throw a bunch of links in uh, the Oye and Scott, um, uh, Carl's work, um, Bushta Allen and uh, Willowton Bushta and Allen, and then uh, Shigese, Nakayama and Taji. So, yes. Yep. And uh, and I just sent you I can't remember if it was a Taj, but the um, the uh, cook chili cooling paper I found. Yes. So. Well. I think that's I think that's a show unless there is something else. Oh, wait, wait, wait! No, there's one more thing. Okay. No, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. We should we need to do this one. We got a follow up um, from a listener to the show, Bruce, who's who's connected with us a few times before, and uh, he writes to us as always. Love the shows. Yes, both of them. Thank you. I completely agree with your views. This is um, in relation to. Um, a risky or not episode that we posted about um, holding salmon at 43 for 15 hours. So he said, I completely agree with your views that it was not at all risky. However, the eating experience was likely to be very compromised. I know the show is not good quality or not. I know that's a different podcast. Mm-hmm. We're not even good eating or not. Also different podcast. But for this particular episode, I was a little surprised that the taste aspect was not mentioned, particularly as this question came to you from someone working in retail, selling the salmon to go on to unsuspecting consumers. I worked in the fishing industry for a few years, and this type of temperature abuse would definitely result in adverse taste. So keep up the great work. Best regards. So, yeah, um, you know, you re- you responded, and I do want to talk, talk about this because I think I also looked at the same paper that you sent, Bruce. Um, about this, but why don't you go through your thoughts on this? Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I, with all due respect, Bruce, I, I'm not. I'm not doubting your experience, but it doesn't add up from what I can see from the literature, right? And so, there's a paper that we will link to entitled, and I couldn't believe it. It's just like the almost like the perfect paper to answer this question, right? Right. Uh, microbial and sensorial models for head-on and gutted, abbreviated HOG. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but okay. Atlantic salmon stored from zero to 15 degrees uh, Celsius. And so um, basically they have a predictive model and and that model shows that 15 hours at um, five degrees C or whatever, what is it? Whatever it was that we said in the the show, Um, uh, 15 hours at uh, uh, 15 hours at 43 degrees C would be fine, right? There's not... There's not significant growth and there's also not significant sensorial uh, change, right? If you look at the, uh, at, at, at five, yeah, what, what are we, what, sorry, I'm, uh, 43 degrees F. So that's, let's just say 10 degrees C, that's a little too high. Um, but basically you're, you're not going to see much of an increase um, in that, in that window. short time. Yeah. 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 
And and I think that the I think it's interesting and just about quality. You know, I think the 15 hours is really the the key. Like it's just a short right. window. Holding it at 43 for 45 hours. Now we're in a different um, right. you know, a different situation. Yep. And and I would like just to I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna guess at this a little bit. Um, you know, it's always good to speculate on on this show. Uh, you know, I've, I've been into a lot of retail stores with a lot of salmon that's on display on ice, mm-hmm. right? So no question, the ice side of that salmon is going to be cold. But I would hazard a guess that there's quite a bit, depending on the air circulation, what the ambient tem- temperature there is. But I bet you the top of that salmon that's on display is close to 43 degrees. It's not too far above regulatory what you know what it would need to be held held at so i bet and i bet you it's up there for hours and hours right so i think if if we like if we really i I bet you this is more commonplace than we think and i i think we would see more quality issues certainly the colder the better but i i i my my guess is this isn't this is pretty commonplace would, yeah. you, would you would you would you agree? Think those display cases are yeah they're they're not holding that temperature very easily. I would you know fifteen hours at a higher temperature no problem you'll get overt spoilage forty three degrees Fahrenheit for a longer time you'll get overt spoilage I just but I just don't think the two of them together would would lead to a problem. Yeah yeah exactly. Hey, well, I think that's a show. Sorry, one more, one more bit of self-inflicted feedback, right? So we did a show on um, the the risky or not that we did on orange juice. um, And I made some statements about uh, botulism in carrot juice that are not correct. Okay. (laughs) Um, And so it looks like there's evidence that in, in some of these uh, botulism in carrot juice outbreaks, and we'll link, we'll link to two, there's, no evidence that the people, I blamed it on the, the consumers that, right. that bought the juice. Um, in fact, there's no evidence that the, that the consumers temperature abused the juice, right? But there clearly had to have been temperature abuse in the chain. Somewhere. Um, but it just yeah. wasn't done by the consumers themselves. And so I, I misspoke on, on that episode of Risky or Not. And so I want to correct the record to say, yes, there was temperature abuse, but that temperature abuse was, was not from the, the consumers, it was really from the, the chain, which is which does suggest that carrot juice is maybe a risky food um, because you ha- you're completely reliant then on the uh, on the chain to keep the temperature under control. Doesn't change the answer about risky or not with respect to orange juice because orange juice has a low pH, right? But 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 definitely, I would think twice before um, buying carrot juice that was not acidified. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I went back looking at the text right now. Essentially, it just says, um, you know, toxin was found in the bottle of three patients elapsed in refrigeration of the carrot juice bottle during transport or storage was suspected. And that's about all we know. Yep. Yeah. But, but again, in those in those the two article, the two articles that I will link, they did there there is a statement to the effect that we couldn't find any evidence that the consumers themselves abused. Right, that, right, right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, it's uh, it's graduation day, and I gotta go. Uh, I gotta go put a gown and a puffy hat on, Don. It's nice. a big, yeah. 
I got a real, I got a real fancy hat. I got a University of Guelph fancy beef eater. Oh so. man, I wish I went to a place that had fancy dress. I've told I've told you about my friend uh, Max Max Haglum, who's in the, is the chair of the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology. He went to school in Finland, and his fancy graduation outfit is a top hat, tails, and a sword. I am not joking. And he gets to come to graduation in that in a top hat, tails, and a sword. That. No, I don't think you told me that. That is, that makes me want to go get another PhD in physics. PhD, exactly. Holy, can you just imagine just showing up like a baller with yeah. a sword? Where, excuse me, where, where I'm going to have to lead my sword up against the podium here. <laughs> let me, let me put my sword down. Oh my gosh, that would be great. That's better than my beef eater. Ah, well, the Don, this has been another episode of Food Safety Talk. Bye. This is the one where we don't have an outro. Yep, this is it. Okay, bye. Bye. So we, in true form, I will post this one before I go. So probably on the 17th. Okay. And then maybe even earlier, I'll, I'll be able to, I'm going to Florida this afternoon after graduation for a national restaurant association meeting, but I do have my computer with me. So I'll be able to, I'll, I, I might be able to edit the audio when I'm there. Um, but I'm not going to be here next week or the week after to record. So we got to cool. record the week of the third. Yep. Would you be able to do, let's see, the 6th of January? Yes. And would you, good? The answer is yes. Yes. And would you be able to do, the only thing I have is an 11 o'clock until noon meeting. So I could do before or after, whatever you prefer. Uh, let's do let's do after, if you yep. don't mind. No, not at all. So one o'clock? Yeah, one o'clock's good. I know you got you got your thing going on where you get all your work done in the morning and well, then you do your fun stuff no, in the afternoon. I'm, no, what, what happens is I get all my email done and then and then yeah. I, I don't I it's that I get uh, inbox zero. Woo! Yeah. And uh, I'm not getting my work done. So gotta gotta work on getting my work done. No, this is good. Okay, good. So then we're yay. 
I feel like I did you listen to um the uh rec diffs this week on Merlin going on vacation? I started it, haven't finished it. It's good. So I ran so they, they that has become my running podcast. podcast. Interesting. Yeah, like I did my I, the half marathon I ran. I, I listened to the whole what nice. I can't even remember what episode, but they're very like I like their conversation. Like Dubai Friday, I listen to it as soon as it comes out, usually. And rec diffs, it's like they're it's just it's easy to listen to. Um it is. So so it's a nice, like I just I kind of forget what's happening. And i I just enjoy John's such a just a funny dude. Like he's just a and I have like admittedly, I've not listened to a lot of rec diffs. I've I've a total, I've probably listened to 15 episodes, and 12 of those have been in the last three months. Interesting. Yeah. Like, I, so anyway, I, so I've, I've got, um, yeah, listen, I, I did a long run on Sunday and listened to it. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, so I, I have, I'm miss, I'm not keeping up with Dubai Friday, unfortunately. Um, but I do, I do, I have watched, I've listened to almost every episode of Rectif. Sometimes if they do one where they start to talk about a show that I haven't watched and won't watch, I'll just skip it. Um, but, but I really do love the, I do love the back and forth. Uh, with with them so it's quite yeah good. and then I mean and Roderick on the line I never miss an episode of that no no always yeah exactly yeah. um okay cool I think that's it we're scheduled we did a little after show um I'm going on vacation um I'll talk I well I'm not no I'll talk to you Thursday I'm like oh, maybe I won't talk but I will I'll talk oh, to no, you we have the thing yep we got our thing Thursday. gotta make my slides yeah yeah cool 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 all right um I will I'll see you Thursday all right bye bye